On today's episode, it was our first roundtable discussion around ACLs with three of our former guests, Justin Richardson, Adam Walker, and Jordan Radliff, who all have special interests within ACLs uh, in athletes and helping them return to sport and performance safely. So a couple of the topics we discussed this time where we started off with early management and just if there's anything specific in the early stages that um, they like that's not talked about as much. We then moved into Compex and BFR as they're a really popular topic right now, how each of these practitioners uses them, if they like them, if they don't like them. We moved into when to, re- when to return to run and the different criteria they use in returning to run. Then we talked about the importance of plyometrics and how they implement them. And then field-based activity and the progressions that each of these three practitioners use, because um, as the field-based rehab is also a major important part of ACL rehab. I then had the practitioners ask one ask one another a question that they wanted to get the other two's opinion on. So a couple of those questions we discussed would be managing quad tendon graft ACL patients uh, with uh, pain and the rehab progression, how they deal with that. We'll talk about the timing on returning the athlete to sport and performance, as there's general recommendations and criteria bases, but just kind of the opinion on uh, general time frames. We talked about patients um, coming to you months after ACL reconstruction and how and how people manage ma- manage that. So it's a really great episode. Really thank these guys for taking the time to be on. Uh, I, have to, I have to apologize. We had to make a little adjustment in order to make sure we can get everyone on. So the audio quality isn't uh, as, as great as it usually is, but the, the content's still amazing. So again, thanks. I really appreciate these guys for for coming on and excited for you guys to listen to the episode. Here it is. Welcome to No Week Links with Patrick Wood. The purpose of this podcast is to help you learn up-to-date, evidence-based content and knowledge through your life experiences. This podcast is perfect for athletes, strength and conditioning coaches, rehab professionals, or anyone in the sports performance or sports medicine industry. So please, have a listen, and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to Nelly Links. I'm your host, Patrick Wood, and today uh, we're going to do our first roundtable discussion. It's going to be a roundtable on ACLs with a couple of our former guests, Justin Richardson from Athletes Authority, Adam Walker from Performance GC, and Jordan Radliff from Woodford Sports Science and Consulting. So thank you very much all for being on. If you could maybe just give a 30-second introduction on yourself again, we'll just start with Justin, go to Adam, and then Jordan. And yeah, just that quick 30-second introduction, um, and then we can move on from there. Uh, yeah, thanks, Patty. So I'm a physio by trade. I did my undergraduate studies at the University of Canberra. I graduated in 2017. And I'm currently studying a Master's of High Performance Sport at UTS in Sydney. Um, as you mentioned before, I'm a physio and rehab coach at Athletes Authority, which is based in Artarman in Sydney. It's a high performance sports centre, and I mainly look after a lot of our long-term rehab athletes, uh, primarily in the field of ACL rehab. And I also, have, in a part-time capacity, work with the South Sydney Rabbitohs. So that pretty much sums me up in that little 30-second 30-second window. All right, and Adam? Thanks for having me again, Patrick. So my name's uh, Adam Walker, and I'm I'm a physiotherapist as well. I'm practicing up on the Gold Coast. Uh, I always run my own uh, rehab-based company where largely we're servicing athletes after ACL reconstruction and injury. While at the same time, I'm completing my PhD on how to optimize the outcomes after ACL reconstruction as well. So that's a, that's a brief summary of me. Perfect. And finally, Jordan? Yep. Thanks for having me again, Patrick. Uh, my name is Jordan. Again, I'm a physiotherapist. 
Uh, based out of Melbourne now, did all my studies on the Gold Coast, but I've been down here for the last three years now. Uh, as Patrick said, uh, I'm the physiotherapist at Woodford Sports Science Consulting, where 99% of my athletes are ACLs. Uh, also work one day a week at a general private practice called Physio Health, and I also have my own business called Melbourne Sports Academy, uh, which is uh, field-based rehab for uh, our ACL athletes or any lower limb athletes, as well as long-term athlete development. And that's me, Matt. Perfect. Well, thank you all again for being on. Uh, I guess uh, we'll kind of move through a couple of different topics and more of the maybe controversial and kind of get a flow through and a discussion going and see how we all do it slightly differently as you all have developed some great programs in ACLs. I guess first we'll just kind of go over that initial management phase and the early management of ACLs. Um, relatively, I'd say it's probably the most standardized among um, the the continuum of ACL management, but I guess we'll just kind of roll through and see if there's anything you found to be beneficial that isn't talked about as much um, or little tips you found kind of in that early phases. And maybe we just can kind of roll through that same um, progression and then uh, with, with Justin first, Adam, and then Jordan. And if you and then we can do kind of a um, discussion at the end if, if we need to. So, yeah, if you want to start, Justin, anything that you found that's really helpful in those early stages that isn't talked about as much? Yeah, well, I'm not really sure if there is any sort of magic bullet to the early stages of rehab that isn't talked about as much per se. But I think in terms of uh, optimizing the outcomes and uh, making things really clear for you as you progress through the rehab, is you really want to identify the key pillars that are going to set you up for success. Now, for me, they really come down to three key pillars. One is uh, effusion management and pain management. That as one. The the second one is quadriceps activation, and the third is normalizing gait patterns. So in regards to effusion management, that's a really that's key across the all the course of the entire rehab. One of the uh, big messages that I uh, portray to my patients and also to other clinicians is you always want to want to be uh, reviewing swelling, and the swelling is the the knee's way of telling you that it's not really happy with what you're doing with it. So um, we want to make sure that the knee quietens down as quickly as possible. In regards to quadriceps activation, um, that's one of the key things that's going to be able to get us moving as quickly as possible. So the, everything, everybody talks about extension, and I feel like uh, it's still uh, lingering around in the sports rehab world about getting extension back passively and you're having therapists push the knee over the edge of the bed and all I find that that really does is piss the shit out of the knee and it makes the makes the patient uh, it p- puts them in a lot of pain makes the knee angry and it doesn't really do very much so um, the the best form of getting active knee extension back is through quadriceps activation so any any drills that are promoting terminal knee extension um, is really what I tend to focus on uh, and as quickly as you can normalizing uh, squat patterns so getting the athlete back squatting as, as quickly as they can uh, may and look there might be restrictions that are placed upon them if they've got meniscus repairs in place and they're put in a brace or they're uh, in a period of partial and non-weight bearing you might be restricted in that sense but for a, a stock standard ACL the the quicker you can get them back squatting and teaching them that skill uh, the better your outcome's going to be. And I actually really like to teach that process pre-op if I get the chance to, but a lot of the time you only get to see them post-operatively. So um, for me, they'll be 
squatting within the first or second week. So that's probably another key one for me. And then the last thing, which I, I think is the most important, is gait patterns. So uh, in regards to the quadriceps activation, there's nothing that activates the quads better than the walking normally. And that's the key message that I promote to my patients. It's actually about walking normally. A lot of them are very keen to ditch the crutches incredibly quickly. And I find that I gain a lot more success by uh, actually having them to, to be used for a little bit longer, but making sure that they're not walking with a limp uh, and promoting a lot of gait drills and gait mechanics drills. And you actually tell them that this is the early foundations of our running patterns. So mini hurdle drills, um, taller hurdle drills, wall drills, as soon as you can get them into those uh, activities, the, the better you're going to set yourself up for success later on. Um, I know we'll probably go into this a little bit more later on, but there are different modalities such as neuromuscular stim and blood flow restriction that uh, can, they can assist you early on, but they're more like the, the icing on the cake rather than the, the actual bread and butter of the cake itself. So they're probably the three key pillars for me early on. Perfect. Adam, under you. Yeah, first, I'd obviously like to reiterate all the things that Justin just said, because they're definitely the key things early. To try and, and, I guess, build in from what Justin was saying, regarding effusion, I think from a clinical perspective, uh, some of the things that can make a bit of a difference is just some heavier compression rather than the standard tubi grip that you often get in the physio clinics. Some other knee compression sleeves, they don't offer... Uh, like they're not rigid bracing sports, but just the knee sleeves actually offer a high degree of compression that can make a bigger difference to managing effusion, particularly if those ones are a little bit more persistent rather than your basic kind of on a tubic grip. Also agree with the fact that often it can be nice to keep on the crutches a little bit longer if there are some deviations in gait, which is largely due to the knee not extending all the way and the active uh, kind of quad activations being the best ways to try and promote that. I think another thing is often underused, particularly around the gait retraining and retraining the functional movements, particularly up here in Queensland on the Gold Coast, often patients will have a lot of access to swimming pools and as soon as the wounds are healed and the surgeon's happy, and if you can get them in the pool, it really provides a nice environment to introduce some of those functional retrainings, um, squats, lunges, those kind of things, but also basic gait patterns and running mechanics things in it environment which minimizes the load on the knee and can be a nice way to get people going um that's often not uh utilized perfect and then under you john yeah i think the boys summed it up uh really well there so the main pillars were for me are exactly the same um i guess the only stuff that i can start to add there was justin was talking about is prehab if i can get someone coming in prehab it makes such a massive difference um, not only on the physical side, but that mental side as well. So they kind of know what's going on, what's going to happen when the first testing occurs, um, when to start thinking about getting off the crutches, all that type of stuff um, that normally a lot of athletes and patients just are not really told about. Um, I guess uh, once once we're working on that gait pattern as well, and that gait pattern's coming along quite well, um, I'm even getting them to start to work on those um, running mechanics quite early. And we just go through some walking dribbles. Dribbles are my main exercise that I use in the acute stage uh, and just get, in, get them to start to work on those really good mechanics. And as Justin said as well, war drills. I love using war drills uh, for terminal extension, but also to, for them to understand that acceleration pattern um, really early. 
Probably lastly is uh, force absorption. Um, second second week, third week even, I'm doing tall to shorts or snap downs, really slow and controlled, but getting them to understand how to um, absorb that force uh, really early. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's my main focus. Um, and then, yeah, just keep progressing from there. Yeah, great. Kind of sounds all similar in theory with just slight variations. I guess well, one thing we can move into that I know being under Justin and um, Adam before have slightly different views, so it'll be good to see the, the, the um, different viewpoints on them with Compex and BFR in those stages. They're really popular now. Do you like to use them? Why and why not? Maybe we'll reverse it around and go Jordan first so he doesn't have to just have to agree with everyone all the time and can actually talk for himself first. So um, we'll go Jordan first. Yeah, no worries. Um, now, I don't use it at all, um, mainly because... I don't feel like I need to with a lot of my clients, but also because at, at Woodfords we don't we don't have it at all. So um, my answer is quite simple. Probably if I did have it, um, I would play around with it and see what the difference are, and just I guess use it as a case study type thing. Um, but with the consistency of the of uh, the athletes coming in, we're quite lucky that I don't feel like I need um, anything like that to really try and. Um, to get different progressions or get that 1% or that extra little percentage. So, yeah, quite a basic answer for me. All right. Justin? Oh, gosh, on to me second. I thought I thought I was going to be I thought I was gonna be last. Um, True. Yeah, that was yeah, me. So, My bad. <laughs> so we, we have both of those available to us. We're quite lucky with that. My take on it is quite simple. Um, both of them are always a means to an end. So uh, I will use them and... I'm very cautious in the way that I use them in the sense that the moment that I don't feel like it's going to add any value anymore, I ditch them completely for the main reason that like I have played around with it a little bit myself and um, ran into a little bit of a trap with someone with the Compex who I used it quite a bit uh, whilst he was in a period of non-weight bearing. He was non-weight bearing for eight weeks. He had <clears throat> quite a significant uh, operation performed and the problem that he developed was that he became very heavily reliant on it and he wasn't actually using it for its intended purpose, which was to provide assistance with contraction. Um, and he essentially stopped doing anything else that I prescribed to him um, and developed CRPS. So that was something that it took a little bit of time for him to get to get over. And we had some pretty brutal conversations with his commitment with his rehab. And he's, he's doing really well now compared to where he was, but that was probably, that's probably down the end, the end of the, the negative end of the spectrum from the positive end of the spectrum. I find that for those that uh, really struggle from say a pain point of view or that pure activation point of view of achieving terminal knee extension, I find that it can really add a little bit of extra juice. And if you, if you are doing lots of repetitions, then I find that it is quite helpful for them early on. Um, but the moment that I can get them under a bar, it's really not used for me anymore. And the moment that I can get them performing like a load and lift drill on the wall and being able to hold a decent terminal knee extension or even just a wall drill march, then I, I sort of throw it out the door. The BFR I find is an interesting one um, because I know that there's hit and miss evidence in regards to its benefits for hypertrophy. I know that's something that we're all, as clinicians, we're chasing really hard with our athletes early on um, is to get rid of the atrophy that they've suffered and gain their muscle mass back. And I know from the literature that it suggests and it tends towards that 
we don't really see that post-ACL reconstruction. But what I actually find is the most beneficial aspects of the BFR with my athletes is, look, early on, they really don't get to have that feeling of like a workout and a pump per se. And I find that the moment that you add the BFR and they're doing, say, bodyweight squats or even if they're on the spin bike, they actually get that feeling of fatigue afterwards, which gives them a sense of accomplishment. It's like, oh, I've actually done a workout here. So I find that it's more beneficial from a psychological point of view rather than anything physiological. Like it, I couldn't put my hand on my heart and say that it made any really clinically significant differences in muscle mass and hypertrophy. Um, now I haven't put in a rigid protocol to use it yet. Um, but for me, I tend to lean towards more of that mental side of things for, for using it. And again, the moment that I feel like it's not adding any value or that they can get like a decent workout from their gym sessions, I just get rid of it straight away. And on you, Adam. I agree pretty much with what Justin was saying. Then I think once, the uh, patient or the athlete can tolerate the uh, degree of loading in their knee without their joint getting sore, then I won't even think about using it because I think if you can load the knee sufficiently without the blood flow, then that's going to be sufficient. I do use it, um, and probably more in the last couple of months, mainly due to access uh, in the last couple of months in that early stage, largely to try and get that quad activation going back again and like Justin was saying, actually they can actually feel the burn and, and you get really good feedback from patients when they say, geez, I actually felt the pump there rather than them just sitting down doing um, quad sets or, or band squeezes and then not feeling too much. It's probably a couple other groups where I might consider the blood flow as well is uh, if you're midway through rehab and hopefully, which is not happening too much, but sometimes you get people in who've got persistent patellofemoral pain and they just cannot see to load their extensor mechanism enough to get their quads back. So it, it can be a bit of a means to an end from in that population. And then finally, uh, well down the line, if we're doing a bit of testing, there are some people that we've tested a lot and they just cannot seem to get that quad activation back, whether they see this long-term chronic persistent kind of AMI or arthrogenic muscle inhibition that just inhibits their quads. It may just be a different stimulus for the brain that can just switch something a little bit different and, and try to get them on the right path as well. Yeah, and then do you want to talk about, I mean, we had a conversation once a little bit about the reason you the reasons you don't use Compex um, or um, the downfalls of using Compex would not them doing yeah. it themselves exactly? Yeah, absolutely. The Compex, we are not using it basically. Pretty much because from a clinical uh, private practice perspective, the machines are expensive, and if they're not coming in that frequently, I cannot see the uh, benefits of uh, them buying a device when they're only going to use it in the clinic because you're just not going to get the stimulus required to have that benefit that you need. Compared to the blood flow, which now you could get a, a cuff for 100 or $200, um, which is reasonable for the right person if they want to invest in that, um, and you could only, um, you would still see benefits if you're using the blood flow two or three times a week. But I don't feel like you'd see that from the context. And with a cost outlay of at least $500, $700 or more for a, a good one, it's probably not 
worth it for the for the patient. I'd rather they invest their money in something else, such as more rehab time with us. True. Yeah, sounds sounds similar again with all of them as, as tools to, to get there, but not the main um, uh, the main meat and potatoes of what you're going to be doing with the athlete. Um, I guess we can move more on now into kind of that mid to late stage rehab stuff and uh, kind of that one of the main questions that gets a lot and has been discussed a lot now is kind of when to return them to running and when can they have their first run. Um, I know Justin, you just did a good presentation on that, so obviously if, if you haven't seen that, I'd recommend going and watching that. Um, do you do you just want to start off, Justin, maybe, and talk about kind of your process and how you determine uh, or what things you go to or look at to see if you want, if they are ready to have that first run? Yeah, so, I mean, with with everything in the ACL rehab process, like the, the most common question that you get asked is, when can I return to sport? The second most common question that you get asked is, when, I, when can I return to run? I, I think it's really important to map out with your athletes uh, task-based progressions to make them feel like in deep down in themselves that they're ready to, to return to run rather than waiting for a period of time. I know that it, it is really starting to get debunked about this time-based um, criteria to return to run and rather that more of a, a an actual criterion-based progression. But for me, um, going back to our key pillars – the again the main one is you, you just can't have an effusion and run and that's just one thing that you're going to run into all sorts of of issues i know adam was talking about muscular inhibition and it, it just kills your rehab so if there's an effusion present you you really shouldn't be running the athlete or if you if you do start to run them and then there is changes in effusion you need to really sort of reevaluate what you're doing um and then the other sort of key things that i i tend to look at uh, we've obviously got a clinical examination. We want to make sure that range of motion is at least, we want full extension but and at least 90 to 95% of flexion uh, of the unaffected limb. You may not always get that back in, in certain population groups. You, you might not get full hyperextension back, particularly if they've had a lateral tenodesis performed. I, I think to expect full hyperextension on some of those people is a little bit unrealistic but if you if you're like one or two degrees off that that's not the end of the world um you you want to have good strength capacity so when i talk about strength capacity i'm mainly uh, talking about single leg squat single leg hamstring bridge single leg calf raise they're very easy clinical tests to perform and i want them within 90 percent of the unaffected limb before they run um, and the, the more that you can standardize this, the better. I know that we were talking about this today, Patty. Um, but I do like to use the, a metronome. I do like to use a standardized height. Now, sometimes that can be difficult depending on the height of the patient. But I think the more and more that you uh, decide on systems for yourself and keep that consistent, the more that you test, then the more that you'll be able to refine that rather than just going, oh, they'll single leg squat to a chair because how tall is the chair? How tall are they? Um, where are their hands sitting? So the more that you can standardize that, the more robust that you can be. Uh, we're quite lucky that we've got um, a lot of valve performances equipment in our clinic. Now, I know a lot of pe people and listeners uh, won't have that, but for those that, that are, we, we use the Nord board and we use a, a prone isometric and we aim for them to be within 20%. Now, that's probably more of a performance measure for us. The more that I play around with that, particularly with the hamstring graphs, I'm noting that a lot of them do have persistent hamstring weakness. 
and sometimes 20% can be a little bit unrealistic, particularly in non-athletic um, participants in our program. So we've got some that traditionally come from a track and field background. So for them, it's incredibly easy because they've re- got a really good base level of hamstring conditioning, but some are F-grade local female AFL footballers that have never been in a gym before. So for that, I think to expect that from them is probably a little bit unrealistic as well. So you've got to use your clinical reasoning in that sense. Um, and then we also use uh, a 20 hop or 20 single leg pogo test to see if they can actually maintain themselves whilst whilst hopping because at the end of the day, running is a repeated unilateral plyometric. Um, the other side of things is we go through an entire plyometric and gait mechanics continuum and we outline specific tasks for them to do. So if, for example, they can't do a load and lift, they're not going to run. If they can't do a single exchange, they're not going to run. If they can't do an A-skip, they're not going to run. And you sort of outline that to to the rehabber you go right you need to tick off all of these tasks so then they're not coming back to you asking when can i run they're going to themselves oh well i still can't do this um i still can't do this a run without tripping over my shoelaces so i'm not ready to run so the more that you can outline to them the tasks that they need to be able to do to run the more clarity that they're going to get and they're not going to just persistently ask you when can i run yep and then on to adam i guess uh i know you have i've seen yours um, kind of done, but obviously without the uh, equipment that Justin has, you'll you have to modify yours slightly and maybe just talk about how you do yours. Yeah, I think just like Justin was saying, if you can early on say, look, these are the criteria that I'd like you to meet before you can run, then um, they'll really thrive off that and then try and push towards and they'll also understand when they're not, um, when you're holding them back a little bit and they're not quite ready. But in, a, in my kind of clinic-based environment, I use the, the kind of inline diameter or handheld dyno to hopefully they're within 20% of the other side. Sometimes they were within 70% and some uh, research has said like uh, Matthew Blackwell's got a few patients saying 70% is okay but if we try to go for 80% also look for a better body weight, um, single leg press some of the similar ones that um, Justin was talking about as well in terms of making sure they're looking like they have good technique with like a um, just like a single switch with the head or uh, a switch with on the on the wall. Uh, good quality step down to make sure that their their motor control is pretty good. And then the the main last one being that single leg bounce or that single leg pogo, which like uh, Justin touched on, I think that's a big one. You that one can often trip up trip up people um, quite a bit, but once they seem to be able to just nicely, it doesn't have to be maximal, but nicely just bounce on that one foot, it's a good indication that they're probably going going okay. Mm-hmm. And then Jordan? Yep. Uh, very similar to the boys with maybe a couple of differences there as well, but first thing is that, that the acute phase is pretty much ticked off, like swelling, massive, um, and if you listen to anything with Julian Feller, he talks about this a lot, that you don't want to do much on a on a angry knee so trying to get that um, swelling under control is a massive one have that full extension and have a really good gait pattern uh, with myself uh, just like Adam I use a crane scale though uh, and I'm looking at quads and hamstrings I want them uh, between 70 to 80 um, percent of the unaffected side um, and I'm look, also looking at a single leg hop that I want uh, at 70 to 80 percent as well 
but a large focus that, that I've been doing is uh, mechanics. So again, as I talked about in that early phase, I'm hitting dribbles as one of my favorite exercises quite early. And I want all my athletes to have really good technique, having real good ground contact time um, and just looking nice and smooth through dribbles around the ankles and dribbles around the calf, which I've got from Dan Paff, uh, Stu McMillan and someone like Graham Morris as well. So I spend a lot of time doing that. Um, similar to what the boys said, um, going through A switches. A switches um, and A skips are massive for me and just getting that athlete to look really smooth control and really good ground contacts. Uh, and then pogos. Pogos are a massive one as well. Uh, I want a really good double leg pogo. Double leg pogo is important for me. Uh, and then I want them to be able to do a single leg pogo, but I know how hard a single leg pogo is for um, a lot of athletes. So I don't expect them when they're returning to running to really excel in that, but I want them to be able to um, go through uh, at least that 10, 15 reps and, and looking quite smooth. But I don't need really short ground contacts yet because I know that's going to come as time goes on. So probably with me is, is mechanics is everything uh, as well as that strength. Yeah, perfect. So it sounds like everyone's moved towards that criteria base and then just utilizing obviously what you what you have available and then the amount of time you have with the athlete and so on and then using obviously your, your clinical reasoning to determine it as well. Uh, well, I think uh, one thing we'll do maybe at the end after we go through some more topics is, is have some questions with one another where I'll let you guys fire off as if you have any things uh, for one another that would might bring on some good discussion as well. But I think we'll shoot it back to uh, Jordan with you talk a lot about the um, you, you're talking about there is even doing some plyometric type uh, movements and how you implement them in, the, in that mid stage as early as possible. Maybe talk about a little bit about the benefit of that and if you have anything else to expand upon it. Yeah, definitely. Um, with the plyometrics, well, the force absorption first is probably the, the most important thing and just getting athletes to um, understand how to absorb that force because obviously when we're going to jump, we have to land and if our athletes aren't landing well, uh, they're going to be struggling already. Um, so firstly, I spend a lot of time in that early stage with force absorption, um, getting the athlete to understand what an athletic base is uh, because, again, that's a very important position for our athletes. Um, and again, for me, it's just regressions and progressions that work their way up all the way to the return to performance part. Um, so after athletes are able to absorb that force double leg, we're going to progress that to single leg. If they're finding that really easy, let's move up onto a box. doesn't have to be high, but let's be able to absorb the force stepping off a box. Perform that double leg and single leg. Lateral if, if I think it's necessary, uh, but then I'm going to start to move into force production. Force production for me starts with, um, well, force production is super important because I feel like, and these boys will agree with me, that yeah, something that athletes say so often is they don't have, um, they don't feel like they have that hop off their affected leg compared to their unaffected leg or their or what they used to have in their affected leg. So trying to hit their plyometrics quite early with movements like uh, pogos, I find super important and just ingraining, ingraining, ingraining. Uh, but back to my force production, I'm starting with more um, just concentric. Uh, if that's just a pause jump before I'm moving into a more counter movement jump. And again, just progressing that up um, by adding weight or by uh, jumping onto a box, so a box jump. Once the athletes are starting to move well through that, that's when some repeated jumps come in. And that's where that uh, elasticity and that plyometric ability is starting to, uh, starting to occur. 
Uh, once athletes are able to do that double and single leg, uh, then we're starting to look at more true plyometrics. So the aim is to get them to perform a really good uh, double leg drop jump uh, and single leg drop jump, which is our true plyometrics is under uh, 0.25. Um, second. So that's the idea of the progressions. And I reckon getting athletes to start that as early as possible, again, at, at the, at the right spot, uh, and getting them to understand how to, how to progress and how to, um, constantly ingrain those patterns is something I find super beneficial. And if that's left, um, too late, I reckon a lot of athletes struggle to get that, that hop back, just like a lot of athletes struggle to get their, uh, hamstring strength back if they don't start to hit that super early great uh adam anything to add to that i think that was great from jordan particularly the early stuff regarding the eccentric stuff because i remember watching a presentation it was from one of the the vowed guys daniel coyle or something like that. i can't remember but he did talk about the fact that uh, yeah, if you, which is often traditionally done in physios, traditionally start the jumping with box jumps or something like that because they don't want to put too much force through the joint. Um, you end up increasing your concentric abilities for your jumping, but you cause a greater asymmetry in your eccentric uh, ability to, to um, absorb the load. So really focusing on absorbing the load and the eccentric capacity early on, as just as the progressions that Jordan was talking about, is probably a big key for me. I think something that we also do in the early phase is, uh, like I mentioned before, is using the pool, or we also use an air track, which is a gymnastic-type mat, um, which is a bit more like a sprung floor, which can just take some of the impact out of it and allow to get those kind of faster, uh, fast twitch fibers or that fast specialing cycle going a little bit earlier, uh, because that's something that athletes often report down the line that they just feel like they've lost that bit of speed or they don't have the springiness there that they uh, had before. I think most of us um, brought up with Edna King when he was out here last year on his course and it's always something that he emphasised a lot and he's shown in his resource that that really reactive strength index and the thing he's done around that is one of the big kind of deficits that does last down the line. So the earlier I think we can get some of that kind of unloaded, faster shorter ground contact time jumping early on while you're doing building your eccentric capacity will set you up pretty well as you start to progress to more uh, advanced plyometrics down the line once you've built your, your strength uh, base back up. Probably the last thing is a real emphasis on lateral plyometrics uh, down the line as well because in, in most ACLs are done during a change direction based maneuver so it's probably underdone the lateral plyometrics to really get them the coordinative aspect of lateral plyometrics, but also the force application um, aspect of lateral plyometrics to try and build that capacity back up as well. Yep, and it sounds really similar to the Athletes Authority um, plyometric continuum, what you guys both discussed, and I know I mean, Justin will probably can expand and touch on that more and what he does with his ACLs uh, next. Yeah, so um, with I think what's what tends where physios tend to fall down with this is they they hear plyometrics and they think uh, they think jump on a box, jump off a box, and land, and they go right, okay, someone a couple of weeks post op probably can't do this, and they're very accurate with that. But like everything that you do in both sports performance but also rehab, you need to have a progressions and regressions model. 
And for us at AA, we, we tend to start the process really early. And even before we're doing a tall to short, like you can get them doing the pattern as just a hinge to base. So you go, right, okay, what, where do I want them to end up? I want them in a base position. So before they even think about landing, you need to start thinking about, okay, do they even know the position that I want them landing in? Okay, we can start a hinge to base. And then that, it couples with the fact that you're also going to get a little bit of hammy loading with that as well. So once they work out what a base position is, because the common question that I get is, what the bloody hell is a base position? Then you can start getting them coming up onto their toes and they just roll from their toes onto their heels. And it doesn't even have to be at speed. So then you start, then you start to add the complexity of they're going from one position to another position. And then you can add a little bit of speed to that. And this is all before that they've even left the ground. So yes, this isn't a true plyometric, but this is the basis of Lockie's work in terms of a plyometric continuum, that you're starting deceleration patterns without them even leaving the ground. And then once they're comfortable and confident with that, and one thing that I will note based on the cohorts that we're coming through now is it is incredibly variable dependent on um, graft selection that I find. Um, so hammy grafts I find are far more comfortable doing uh, early plyos than a patella tendon graft. Um, now, I don't have as much experience with an aloe graft. I know it's from speaking with uh, a couple of local surgeons, Justin Rowe, namely, is that they have to be, because they don't have the morbidity that a hammy or a patella tendon graft have due to the, the, um, the harvest sites, that they tend to feel really great, but you need to slow them down a little bit just from the way that the graft is sort of taken, stored, and then pro- processed into the athlete themselves. But I don't deal with a lot of aloe grafts. Um, but back to, back to my point. Um, so th- the starting point is literally just getting them rolling from their toes to their heels before you even leave the ground. Then once you leave the ground, you go into the, the stuff that uh, Jordan and Adam were talking about, which is, is a big focus on force absorption. Um, And I find that that really builds a lot of confidence in the athlete. I've had some that didn't, like they burst into tears before they even wanted to leave the ground. So if you're thinking that if they're like that and you're going to try to introduce that concept to them at week 12, 14, 16, 20 or whatever, later on down the track because you're trying to build a strength base first, you're going to slow yourself down a lot because it's going to take them ridiculous amounts of time to get confident with the basics. Whereas if you can start the basics early on, whilst they're still whilst they're still healing, but it's safe for them, they're going to build a lot of confidence because like everything, and a key message that I try to promote to, um, we've got a big intern program at AA, so to the interns um, that are with us is that think of your exercises more as skills rather than lifts. And because we all get taught to coach and there's different stages of skill acquisition. So if you think of it more as a skill, then you go, right, how do I break this skill down and make it as easy for them as possible? So then they can grab onto those concepts and really build a foundation for success for later on. Because uh, we all like to post our... Uh, Instagram videos of, of really advanced plyometrics with our successful athletes later on in the process. But that's only, um, the, the, those successes are only because of the countless hours that they've done developing the basics early on. So uh, apart from that, I think the boys hit the nail on the head. You, you really want to start with a nice bilateral eccentric absorption stream. Um, once they're confident with that, 
then you can go into more of a concentric expression. So that's where you can go to a box jump. Um, even if you then from a unilateral perspective, that would be like a box hop. Um, then you can go into a jump integration model. So where they could do like say a broad jump and starting to get into your single leg hops. Uh, and then a continuous jump model, which is that they can do some continuous jumps, maybe we're starting with some double contact time. So they're getting a little bit more of uh, force spreading through the ankle Achilles complex rather than purely through the knee. And then finally, we aim to get into a shock method complex, which is where they get into a lot of their drop jumps, depth jumps, um, depth to tuck hops. Uh, and a big focus for us later on in the process is um, going into multi-planar plyos. As Adam said, it was very rarely is it purely a sagittal plane motion that you uh, tear your ACL. Um, and then also adding other stimuli, whether it's perturbations, whether it's uh, visual distractions, audio distractions, um, as much as possible to, to throw them off. And it goes back to a concept which I'm sure all of us are aware of, which is um, being promoted by Matt, I think it's Matt Tabernar over from Everton, which is that control to chaos continuum. We're, we're starting in a really controlled environment. And then the, the more that the athlete becomes competent with that, we, we want to make it as chaotic as possible to replicate the demands that they need to perform in their sport. And that's going to look very different depending on if they're a hockey player, depending on if they're uh, an AFL player, a soccer player. And then for some, um, if they're like, I, I've got one at the moment who his main sport is high jump. And he happened to do his because he fell in a pothole um, playing a social game of soccer. Now, for him, soccer is not the priority. So I'm probably not going to spend as much hours on all of the the plyos based around that I would for a field sport athlete. But for him, it's about, well, how do I get his vertical jump as ridiculously high as possible? So you, again, you've got to tailor it to the athlete the further down the process that they go. Yep. Good. Yeah. Again, a lot of crossovers there. And uh, I think it's, as you all mentioned, it's maybe done incorrectly more than it is correctly. And it's good to see the perspectives of what, of what you guys said and the reasonings behind. Um, I know you guys also all do a lot of field-based activity and field-based um, rehab with these athletes and, and emphasize that as a major importance as well. So maybe we'll go back through now and we can talk about um, kind of, I guess, whatever your main hi highlighting points of the field-based activity. If you want to talk about a couple of progressions or things you highlight that you think are important, we can do that as well. So I guess, uh, Justin, if you want to kick us off with kind of how you guys run yours and then what your in the importance is and why you do it and so on. Yeah, so we have a what we call an extensive and intensive model of rehab run progressions. So we have different levels for the athletes to achieve. We've uh, done our very best to quantify the distances that we want the athletes to get at each level um, and the, the max velocities that we want the athletes to hit at each level. And that way that we're, we're, we're being very objective about it. We know that they're progressing at a nice steady rate. So we're going to minimize the risk for any sort of complications to occur. And then the main principle for us is we like to build volume um, and then add intensity on that volume. And then once we've ticked off both, the athlete can tolerate the volume that we set out for them and then increase the intensity ever so slightly on that volume, then we would maintain the intensity but increase the volume again ever so slightly. So then how that works for us is that um, we would have the athlete complete an extensive run twice 
uh, provided they get through that run with no no swelling, no, um, no pain, mainly post. I find that some athletes can get some pain during, and there's there's a lot of there's a lot of consensus about what causes that. Now I'm finding that a lot more is it's very like neural sensitization and like you could talk for days about what is the cause of that, but I do find it to be okay to push them through a little bit of pain during the run. But if they're pulling up 24 hours post run with knee pain, that's a sign for me that they haven't tolerated that run. Um, so if they can get through two of say the extensive runs uh, with none of those symptoms, then we'll progress them on to the intensive version of that run. Um, and then that's our process. If for example, they get through one of them without any symptoms, but after the second one, they do get some symptoms, we'll keep them at that level. If they can't get through the first one at that level, we'll regress them. Um, and then the probably the only caveat is that say, for example, it's their first run. If they pull up with some symptoms, um, you can try modifying that and taking them to an even smaller volume. Um, if they're still getting issues, then, I mean, I, I haven't run into this problem before. It's more so the ones that start to get issues are sort of midway through the run pro- process when you're adding more complex demands. But uh, what I would do would be take them back, take them through a full assessment and, and see why they're getting issues. Um, but so that's more or less our run system. In terms of specific drills, I think uh, it goes back to that principle of we, we want to take them from a controlled environment into a chaotic environment. So uh, to start with, we just focus on linear running. And once they can get through a decent block, so for us, it's about four weeks of just linear running, then we start to add in some change of direction. So a basic drill that we have in our programs is an H drill, which involves it involves forwards running, backwards running, deceleration, lateral running. Uh, this isn't at any sort of massively intense speed, but it's just exposing them to all different planes of running. Um, and then following on from that, uh, we would get into, say, more Z-based cutting runs, uh, then Y-based cutting runs. Uh, then from that, that's when uh, I know that, sorry, the boys might have a bit of a different opinion, but we, we add curvy linear runs a little bit later. Um, we only tend to add the curvy linear runs and by curvy linear, I mean more of an S rather than actual sharp change of direction. Um, once uh, they can hit a reasonable velocity and the reasoning for that is that we want to make sure that for, for, for that side of things, it's more of a hamstring conditioning point of view. And we find that athletes, particularly in field sports, they, they run, they run into issues with hamstring strains very rarely with the pure linear based aspect of running it's more when we're starting to add a curve in so we'll add that in later down the track and then we start to combine the different drills so we'll combine an h drill and a y drill we'll add reactive components in different um different variations um we'll get them doing different uh cuts and and hard d cells so little 303s and 505s and then in the very last process like we've got this obviously this broad um framework for running but then at the very last step of the process i tend to veer a little bit away from that and take them into more sports specific work um based around well what do they feel confident doing am i noticing when they're jumping and landing that they're only landing on the their non-affected limb are they only turning their hips to their non-affected side so we really start to hone in on the specifics that um that their deficits show um but i guess the main point that I want to bring across to the listeners is that you you want to make sure that your progressions are gradual to make sure that th- 
you're minimizing your risk of anything going wrong because it is a little bit of a minefield and athletes will tolerate one drill and not tolerate another. They'll tolerate one speed and then the next session that they're not, they'll pull up with other issues. Uh, A big one when they return to run is pulling up with shin soreness. So you've really got to make sure that the reasoning that that occurs isn't because you've taken them from a thousand meters a session to 5,000 meters a session in the time span of a week. You want to reduce as many variables as possible. So if something goes wrong, you're not scratching your head going, oh, well, it could be A, B, C, or D. You're like, oh, okay. It's the reason why this happened when you troubleshoot it is because of reason B, because there's only one reason rather than there being 20 reasons. And you're like, well, which one is it? Perfect. Um, Abby, you want to talk about how do you guys do it at Performance GC? The the main thing I probably wanted to touch on is about reactivity or reactive drills because in the end, a lot of the the ACO injuries are non-contact in nature that are reactive to an external stimulus. So a big focus will be trying to uh, do an adequate or appropriate progression from a pre-planned drill to a full open drill such as training or game-based environment. So if you have your key skills, whether that's uh, shuffling, cutting, deceleration, um, linear running, but then you can progress those from a reactive standpoint, then you're going to get closer to more of a sports-based environment. So, for example, you might go from uh, just a pre-planned drill where the athlete in their own time knows they're going to run from or shuffle from point A to point B. Then you might uh, add a bit of reactivity in by just making this starch reactive. So uh, basically you could say, all right, on my clap or on my signal, whatever, that means you're going to go and react and you're going to go from point A to B or whatever the drill is. Then you could add some reactivity during the drill. So for example, when they uh, they start, they're moving, when they get to a cone or get to an opponent or something, they're going to receive a cue and that is going to tell them where to go next. I think from there you're going on to the more one-on-one based drills which are basically the mirror type activities before you move into doing mirror based activities but with more than two people, so three or four people at a time and then you're progressing that onto more open drills or more uh, uh, training based activities that they would do with their sport or game based activities. I think if you can progress the reactive nature of the, the drill then you're going to be exposing them to that appropriately, but also giving them enough stimulus so that their brain has had enough term time to develop and learn from a mode learning perspective that they can maintain a good technique and uh, range direction and cutting base technique as they progress and add more complexity to the to the drills. Good, <clears throat> and and then to Jordan, I know you kind of just started your own business and field specific stuff, so we can talk yeah. about that some. Yeah, definitely. Um, I guess to start with, I guess my approach is it's kind of turned into now a bit of a, a long to short to everything meets in the middle, if that makes sense. A kind of a Charlie Francis short to long, but starting a little bit longer, um, which that means is working when they are starting to run, working on a lot of tempo type stuff. So let's start to build that work capacity. Um, and everything starts very linear, um, just like Justin was saying before, um, just trying to get a little bit of volume in early. Uh, the only thing I kind of do differently there is when they're starting to move and feel all right just in linear, 
in our tempo runs, I'm starting to um, really subtly add in some S runs. Um, even so, this is quite early in some S runs, and even when they're starting to feel um, pretty good there, um, even a shuttle. So five minutes to the left, five minutes back, five minutes to the right, five minutes back, then go into their tempos. And even a really subtle acceleration, come back to decel and then push out into their tempos. Um, so the intensity is quite low, the volume's quite high, but I'm already trying to, I guess, ingrain those patterns before the intensity builds up. Uh, progression from there comes shorter now. So I'm working more on linear, intensity's higher, and it's a, an acceleration-based. Uh, and... Again, just working on techniques, starting to increase that intensity, slowly build that up from uh, acceleration, um, four, five, six-week block, and then move into more max velocity. Uh, and throughout that, I'm adding in some more intense excel to decel, um, starting to work on very um, subtle change of direction, um, and then that degree is going to get a little bit more. Um, that kind of progresses to exactly what... Um, Adam was chatting about where that reactivity comes into it. Um, and for this, I follow uh, Elon Performance quite a lot, which I've talked to you about before um, with their progressions. So I kind of start with uh, a lot of one-on-one based stuff uh, and that involves some chasing, all right? Progressing from chasing, uh, progression from chasing is going to be more mirror drills. Uh, mirror drills start to progress into more dodge work. Uh, dodge becomes into score. And when you're at the score, that's when there's more um, small-sided games and stuff like that. All that starts kind of 1v1, but it can go 2v1. It can go 2v2, 3v2, something like that, depending on what athletes I've got around me. Uh, but I... Yeah, I reckon that reactivity side is super important and it's fun. When you get in later stage rehab and re- like the field's fun in general, like everyone's having a pretty good time. Um, so being able to get a little bit competitive that, as that goes on, um, I find super beneficial and everyone gets around each other and it makes rehab a lot funner and less lonely, I guess, um, which is exactly what you want. Yeah, great to hear those um like I said, the importance of, of implementing those field-based sessions and to see how you guys um, do the similarities and slight differences. I guess one last thing we can do here is uh, if, if anyone has a slight question or topic that they want to ask the other ones, we can maybe um, do that and it might create a, a decent discussion. Or if, if you guys, like I said, have anything specifically that you've been wondering that the other two do, uh, if you do, if you don't, that's fine as well. But Justin, if you wanna anything specific that you wanna see, if these guys how these guys do um, to create a little discussion. Yeah, I think probably just um, something that's on my mind a bit because I'm starting to see them a little bit more is getting your your boys' opinions on how you manage the progression of quad loading on those with patella tendon grafts and how you manage their present and in extension a quad tendon graft because they're becoming more common and how you manage their presence of anterior knee pain because it is i personally find it is a lot more difficult than a typical hammy graft um i mean i know the research is out there that it's a far stronger graft but it's also far more difficult to rehab um so yeah i'd be keen to hear your thoughts on what you guys have experienced in that in that space um because, yeah, I find that they're particularly if we're get going, like, say, past 90 degrees on a squat or uh, into more positive shin angles, I find that they tend to have persistent troubles. Um, but, yeah, open floor. Adam, you want to start on that? 
Yeah, I can start there. Probably the the first thing is uh, on the Gold Coast, we actually, I don't think we have any patella tendon grafts coming through. I haven't seen one in probably four or five years. Even then, it was only one or two, I think, very at the start, and I think that surgeon's retired now, so we're really not seeing any patella tendon grafts. Getting a few quad grafts through every now and again, but not enough of a, um, I guess, a client base to make any kind of, obviously, grand scale kind of clinical opinion, but uh, I think it was the kind of stuff that you were starting to touch on there, Justin, regarding, obviously, closed kinetic chain-based activities, um, the deep you go into flexion and then more patellofemoral and, and then tendon lobbying you're going to get around the knee and same with the positive shin angle and then with the open kinetic chain it's the opposite so the more flexion you're in generally the more load there is through the um, through the patellofemoral joint so we can manipulate some of the range based variables there and hope that as you extend into the range as they're um, progressing on and building a strength base through the the ranges that are comfortable to start off with that'll carry over to the outer the outer ranges where there is more tendon loading but there, I really haven't seen enough of them because the hamstring graft is just so dominant that just don't have the populational client base to make a big judgement Jordan, do you, same thing have you ever seen any or do you have any advice on that? Uh, we see a lot of uh, quads uh, we get Julian Fellas knees that come through uh, I've been lucky enough that most of the quads that I've seen have um, progressed really well. Um, I think a lot of that for me has come down to uh, consistency uh, with the availability of those athletes that I see. Um, and we also don't have what is really basic, as in there's no machines, there's, there's nothing like that. Uh, so just doing the thing that works for us I believe. I'll talk about one client that has struggled a bit, but for most of them, what has worked for us is just spending a lot of time on that foundation, focusing on real slow eccentrics and just not pushing those athletes. Um, I don't mind going into when there's a little bit of pain, but just not going through um, too much pain with those athletes and focusing a lot on eccentric type stuff. Um, I found was massive early on and that kind of set up the rest of the rehab to run pretty smooth. The only exception is um, an athlete I got that has struggled quite hard, firstly, um, with um, shin splints um, and then developed uh, patellofemoral joint pain or anterior knee pain as time has gone on. The, I guess the, the main reason that I believe that is that's different to the other fellas is this guy or this person was unable to be super consistent and they were so on and off and on and off and then COVID hit and on and off and on and off that, um, that it's just been an up and down and up and down battle the whole time where we've had to really back off the load, um, work on a lot of patterning, uh, even single leg based stuff, just reduce that depth quite a lot. Um, and find exercises that, that work for that person. If that's more of an isometric hold, um, or, or whatever, um, to just get them continuously kind of improving, but not going forward, then, then dropping all the way back and doing that over and over again. Um, yeah, I guess that's the, that's the answer to that for me. Those good, Justin, any follow-ups or move on to 
next question. Yeah, no, no they're, they're all good follow-ups. It's, yeah, it's, it's something I don't, I don't tend to see them a, a whole lot. I've got a, f- a couple that are mainly they're mainly revisions. Um, so I think I've probably got about three or four in the clinic at the moment. Yeah, four with three of them being patellas and one being a, a quad tendon, all of which revisions. And all of them, bar one, also have a lateral tenodesis as well. So I find that... No, I, I tend to find that with the hammies with lateral tenodesis, I haven't seen too much of a problem. Occasionally, they can get a little bit of pain around that extra scar site. Um, but the ones with those patella tendon and quad grafts, have, yeah, they have really sort of struggled um, to get loading loading early. But that it's all great thoughts from the boys. Um, I think it's what, something that if in regards to the presence of anterior knee pain, if we knew the answer to it, then we probably wouldn't be having the discussion because every person's every person's different. And I'm sure all the boys have experienced um, the weird and wonderful traits of the anterior knee pains that disappear through various forms of treatments, the ones that don't disappear, the ones that just can't tolerate certain exercises and the ones that do. Um, so I think that's a conundrum that the whole research world is still aiming to, to figure out. Um, for me, like the main principle is just doing your very best to develop the quads as much as you can and, and regain that um, mind-muscle connection. Now, for, for some, it's far more difficult than others. And um, a, a massive point which I'm starting to notice that Jordan touched on is just that consistency. You can really tell like the ones that for us, because we're lucky to, if they want to, they could be in every single day. So the, the ones that are in there every single day or close to uh, do far better than the ones that they'll come for a week and then you don't see them for two and then they're back and then, and then they're gone and then it, that's, they're the ones that um, give me a poor sleep score in my aura ring because every time they come back for their physio follow-up, <laughs> they're the ones that are like, oh, my knee's sore. And I'm like, oh, my life is just dealing with knee pain. Yeah. Um, so we'll go. We'll go last. Last two kind of topics here. We'll go. Um, Adam, have any have anything you kind of want to discuss these two, and then we'll go Jordan after that. Uh, yeah, I'd just like to touch on the issue or the. Uh, not really an issue, but opinions around timing of return to sport. I, I mean, we're well aware that obviously criteria need to be need to be met, and maybe time is one of those criteria. But it's interesting now with discussions around if you're looking over towards the UK and the English um, soccer, you know, they might be back at five to six months. And in Australia, particularly in the AFL, they like to shoot out beyond 12 months. But then you get people at Collingwood like Tyson Goldsack who came back at five months. Whether that's a a difference in sports, then you've got uh, Edna King's research over in Ireland, which says that bone patella bone can come back at six months with no problems, but hamstrings need to wait nine months. Um, then you've got people in the clinic that are absolutely flying by six months. And uh, I think uh, Jordy mentioned before, there's a little podcast with Julian Feller, and he's obviously one of the biggest surgeons renowned here in Australia. The fact that he doesn't believe that there is a time-based thing, um, but then you obviously look at graft maturation data and that doesn't, um, you know, says that the graft doesn't maturate till later. So I think it will just be an interesting area as we go forward into the into the future regarding kind of time-based criteria. So if there's any kind of comments around that, it would be interesting. Jordan, you want to start there? Mm, I think it is super interesting because there is so much 
research out there, I guess, and there's so many opinions out there. Um, and I guess what I've learned, well, when I was at physio school, number one, you don't learn too much about ACLs at all. But number two is that they make you pretty scared of, of working with ACL athletes and when they should return to sport and, and everything like that. So I think already a lot of people, um, especially in Australia, um, have, have gone more for that 12 months to 18 months or whatever just because of, of what we've been taught quite early on. Um, I guess it is definitely, um, I reckon time, you, gotta, you always think about time, but you're always on a criteria base. Uh, and it's going to be super individualized from athlete to athlete. Um, my big thing that I've been hitting, because everyone everyone does quite well, um, and I could start rambling here, but everyone does quite well in, in the gym as time goes on and they're progressing pretty good. But I feel like there's a massive disconnect um, out on the fields. Uh, and that's even with a lot of um, good physios and S&C coaches, they haven't fully understood how the progression goes out on the field and returning them back to sport. And I feel like that's where maybe uh, the, the professional level, um, and someone tell me if I'm wrong here, but that's where the professional level could um, be doing a lot better than, than a lot of um, other S&C coaches or private practice uh, physios or whatever um, to allow those athletes to come back a little bit earlier in a, in a I guess, controlled and, and cautious um, time frame. Whereas I, I believe, yeah, that, that we need to get a lot better on the field-based side if, if we are going to talk about reducing um, that time frame. Um, but, yeah, I hope that answers a little bit. Yeah. And Justin? Yeah, it's it's a, it's a really interesting question, and I, I listened to um, a a video webinar with Kate Webster and Julian Feller about this um, on Mick Hughes's platform the other day. I think when I sort of analyse um, the literature, which we've sort of gone full circle about thirty years ago, they were returning them at nine, and then they said, "Oh, hang on, um, it's better if we rate longer because of graph maturation. Let's let's push it back, particularly for the adolescents. Let's go back to two years." And then we worked out that <clears throat> that didn't really do anything either. So we're sort of swinging back to that nine-month pendulum. I think when I go off my experience of the people that I see and um, and how they progress clinically, I think that when we talk about time frames, I, I don't. I would only have a very handful of athletes that I would say would be physically competent to play sport. At, at six months um, and at the end of the day right like and this is another thing that's sort of going full circle with the literature in regards to strength testing hop testing all of our batteries of tests where we we weren't really focusing too much on them and then we were focusing heaps on them and we had these batteries of tests that were 20 tests long and we're starting to work out that a lot of them don't really have that much of a relationship with re-rupture rates anyway but we've also got to think about well, we're ret- the athletes come to us playing a sport and they ideally want to return to that sport. If they weren't, then you'd be having conversations of, well, are you even going to get the surgery anyway? <laughs> so we want them to return to sport and to be able to return to sport, we want them to be able to return to performance. So when they're returning to performance, they've got to be able to play their sport well. And a large majority of the athletes, that, even in our setting where we get to see them a lot, aren't ready by six months because life gets in the way. They've got school, they've got uni, they've got work, which 
really detracts from the time that they get to spend to their rehab and it adds to the overall stress and fatigue um, of their entire life. Whereas a professional athlete, which we're seeing in the NRL a lot more now, they're coming back in six months, they're, they're spending, a, their job is to rehab. So I, I think for us in the private setting, comparing ourselves to professional sportsmen, it's really hard because it, it's almost like comparing apples to fish you're not going to get an, a really accurate representation of where the athlete's at. Um, I, I think that there is probably a little bit in the research about nine months and returning before nine months. But again, is that due to the graft or is that just due to the athlete not being physically competent? Because I know that I'd be able to, if I lined all of mine up, I'd be able to, the ones that are at five, six months, I'm like, you are just not ready to go back, mainly because you would probably just gas out and the ball would hit you in the face. Like, you've got to go through the, all, the, all the progressions that you need to be able to make sure that they're strong, they're fit, they're fast and skillful before returning to sport. And then I think the other aspect of it is we, there's all the stuff that they do with us and then you've got to integrate them back into team training as well. So I like to, where possible, have have a really nice um, slow stream of progressions for them returning to team training where to start with as early as possible, and maybe it is at that six-month mark, they're just there doing some maybe a rehab run or maybe some of the maybe it's one con block or it's the warm-up and and a, a bit of speed with their teammates so they feel like they're part of the team atmosphere again and then after that you can progress to their skills drills with their teams and then after that you can progress to skills drills contact and some contact drills but no small-sided games and no full-on game scenarios then after that then you can add small-sided games after that you add full game scenarios and then you can integrate them back into um, ha- having minutes under their legs. Um, but I, I think another thing that's really important to, to think about, and I only got this after listening to a presentation, but I think his name's Matt Jordan in Canada, um, and he presented, he works with um, winter sport athletes with the Canadian Institute of Sport, and he presented some nice data suggesting that a lot of the athletes that um, re-rupture don't actually re-rupture around the nine month or 12 month interval when they come in, they, t- they pass their battery of tests and we go, congratulations, you're returning to sport. They, a lot of at least the athletes that they studied were re-rupturing around the 18 to 24 month mark. And what they started to find was that the athlete at the 18 to 24 month mark um, was very different to the athlete at nine months. So we've, we've got this huge focus on return to play, return to sport, but then we go, right, you've returned to sport. See you later. And when you think, when you actually verbalize it, it sounds ridiculous because someone a year later could be completely different to what they were when they passed, passed in quotation marks, their return to sport testing. So I think the message that needs to be passed on to a lot of these people is it's not just about the nine to 12 months or however long you spend in your rehab. What you do afterwards is incredibly important. Now at the very basic level, uh, and I'm talking like super amateur level social athlete, that could be as simple as just the FIFA 11 plus or some form of injury prevention program that they're putting in place. But for majority of the athletes at the level that I'm seeing, which is, yes, they might be amateur, but they might be high level amateur or semi-professional. It's about participating in a program that keeps them strong, fit, fast and confident after their rehab process and ongoing monitoring. 
because we're starting to notice in retrospect that <clears throat> the people that either have in, that have instability episodes, whether operative or non-operative, usually beforehand there's um, and in there's a, there's some moments where their strength's down. They've had an incident of some unrelated pain somewhere else, and it's affected their gait. So mon- I think monitoring and looking after these athletes over the long term is is really important. Like a, a case study I'll use is um, a guy that I was looking after, still am looking after on a non-operative basis. And um, he, during the COVID lockdown period over Christmas, he decided he didn't want to come in. He didn't want to train. And we're like, okay, that's fair enough. Like you, you've everybody's got their own decisions about that. Um, when he came back, um, his on his regular testing, his Nordboard strength was down probably about ten or fifteen percent from his usual scores, and he he would pull ridiculous numbers like over six hundred newtons, so sitting around the f- sort of four fifty mark. And then we didn't really bat too much of an eye at the time, but then two weeks later he had an instability episode, and so we start to think afterwards, going, well, is that something that we should have looked into a little bit more? And I, I think there is something there and possibilities for future research is to look into this ongoing monitoring and how can we look after these athletes on an ongoing basis rather than just focusing whilst they're, whilst they're rehabbing. And something that uh, Ender Kings, he, I'm sure he said to you boys, but he sort of says that something that sticks in my mind is we, we, we learn a lot from the dead soldiers. So um, <laughs> obviously he's not dead, he's still going, but... For us, it's and for any clinician, it's you learn from your mistakes. Yeah, yeah, really good points there. Does that uh, answer your question? Any comments to that, Adam? Um, yeah, no real comments here. I, I think um, probably the main thing is just like Justin said, it's pretty going to be pretty rare that people are going to be ready in six months just because we're in the environment we're in. Whereas I think the nine to months thing probably comes into the fact that that's just going to happen long it's going to take for the majority of the amateur athletes to be. The physical uh, physical benchmarks they need. So that's probably it. Yep. All right, and last one here, Jordan. Jordan, if you have any anything, we can have these two answer it, and then let you guys yep. get going. Perfect. Also, just like to say that was a good answer, Justin. I really like that you started to talk about that long term athlete development because at the end of the day, if, uh, ACL rehab is strength and conditioning based rehab. So if they understand that once, and that's what a you hope a lot of people do understand that once they have completed that they're going to stay with you because it's just a really good strength conditioning program that's individualized to them that if they do want to continue playing sport that that's what they've got to do um so i like the answer man appreciate that um i guess to finish off we always talk about um all right we get these athletes at a acute stage we work them through they're they're ingraining the patterns they're looking good through every little phase um, but how do you guys manage um, those athletes that you don't see until eight months and, and or seven to eight months and you say, um, how's your rehab been going? Um, and they say, I haven't really been doing much. My, my physio or my whatever, my allied health professional um, has given me a couple exercises. They, I've just seen them recently. They've cleared me to go back to sport. Uh, and you say, have you done any testing, anything like that? And they say, no. Um, they're the athletes that we see quite often at Woodford's. Um, that have struggled. Maybe they've had um, they're on their second revision or even their third, and then they then they come see us. So, how do you guys um, kind of work with those type of athletes? Uh, Adam, you want to take that first? I'll go to Justin. Yeah, um, just quickly. I I guess I'd almost 
person that does um, is really keen and does a heap of rehab for the first four or five months, gets back running again, feels okay, and then you don't see them again, they're probably more of a worry than the person that comes in later because you can always make up the ground and get them to where they need to be later. One of the most important things is making people sure people complete their rehab. So I, I'd rather somebody come back a little bit later and complete their rehab all the way through. And it's just as um, Geordie was just starting to touch on there, it's basically just finding out where they're at. So if the, if the piece of paper says they're eight months post-op but their physical testing only says they're you know, three or four months post-op, then that's essentially where they're at and then you just kind of go from there. Perfect. Um, Justin? Yeah, I think Adam hit the nail on the head, like just because that they've come to you at a certain stage and they say that they are where they are. I think having a robust system in place to be like, okay, well, if you are where you are, then you've got to show to me that you are where you are. And what I find is that a lot of them will then self-realize. I go, oh, geez, I'm really not where I'm at or I'm not where I need to be. Um, what I, I, I don't tend to see these guys a lot or the ones that I do see, it's not really that they're uh, at eight months, but or like eight months is just an arbitrary number here, but they're at eight months and they're just, they haven't done any testing or their rehab's been pretty weak, but there's no other issues going on. A lot of the time, those ones that I see are people that have got persistent pain because they've gone through incredibly poor rehab early on. And I think probably a message for clinicians, and this might even sound uh, a little bit strange is like for me poor rehab is far worse than no rehab like what adam was saying is you can always catch up at the end but if someone has had a program implemented early that is just makes no sense whatsoever then you can just really really make life difficult for someone because i've got people that like picked up at six months with persistent anterior knee pain um that have improved but the fraction of improvement is nowhere near as big as I'd like it to be and I still can't get them doing as much as I want them doing purely on the basis that they still get pain and it's just it's such a slow process for them and it's it's really heartbreaking when you have to outline to them that like none of this is their fault but they've just been put through a series of unfortunate events early on so I, I think it's ironic because a lot that I hear about is that physios need to be better at uh, late stage rehab. And look, whilst in, in parts I agree with that, I actually think that as a whole, as a profession based on the facilities and the resources that are generally available to us, we need to be far better with our early stages and then just accept our limitations and pass them on to an SNC coach later on. That's for the vast majority for us. If you don't have an integrated team, if you don't have the resources or the knowledge yourself, you just need to understand what your limitations are and just be really good at what you're good at because you can't be everything to everyone. Um, but what you can do is you can very easily ruin things for someone by treating them poorly early on. Um, and then it's, it's, it's really hard for those people because I, I think that's where they get lost in these statistics of people that don't return to sport um, and in that instance, they're not even a re-rupture because they've never returned to sport in the first place because they just abandon um, all hope and luck and because they've got knee pain, they're not good at their sport every time they go back. It's always two steps forward, 1.95 steps backwards. So 
um, I think in that sense, we, we've just got to sort of be very realistic with them. And if they've got issues like knee pain, you go, right, this could actually take quite a long time to get over, uh, but we're going to do our very best. And you always stay really positive. You never abandon hope in things. You go, right, okay, I'm going to do everything in my power um, to get to get you where you need to be. And I, I think particularly in, say, for example, the absence of uh, physiological issues such as swelling and other trauma, I think the more that... And this is not to discredit the sort of the biomedical guys, like the, the surgeons that I work with are great. Um, guys like Julian Fellow are great. All the sports physicians that I work with are great. And I'm sure that they're the same um, down in Melbourne and on the Gold Coast. But I think the more that we can keep people that have persistent pain purely from more a, a neural sensitization point of view away from that biomedical pathway, uh, I think the better their outcomes are going to be because it's a very slippery slope to injections and then our oh, injection didn't work, so we'll go in for an arthroscopy and then the arthroscopy didn't work and now you've got developed osteoarthritis, so we're going to get do a high tibial osteotomy and then we're, oh, okay, we've gone a few years with that, now we're going to do a knee replacement. I know that that sounds pretty grim, but um, the more that we can uh, approach these people with... Uh, our best skill sets, which is exercise rehab, which is shown to be the best form of, of medicine for all conditions, regardless of it being orthopedics or cardiovascular or um, mental health. I think the more that we can approach people with those interventions, the better their outcomes are going to be. Great. <clears throat> Jordan is a off topic there towards the end. But... <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, Jordan, any comments to add to that? Or... No, loved it. Really good answer from both of you. Appreciate it. Awesome. Well, Thank you all very much for being on. Really appreciate you guys taking the time out to do this. Um, I'll make sure to go check out the show notes. I'll make sure to link all of their information, where to follow them, where to contact them, and so on, um, just to save some time here. So, yeah, um, thank you again for all for being on, and make sure to go check the show notes to get their information. Thanks very much, everyone. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, boys. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to No Week Links. If you'd enjoy the show and would be able to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, that would be much appreciated as it would help the show reach more people. I also provide free strength and conditioning content and injury rehabilitation content on Instagram at Coach Patrick Wood, on my website, www.patrick-wood.com. All this information can be found in the show notes. Thanks for listening.